This program contains strong language. Can we like put our Molly, acid, cocaine, ketamine, all that stuff on there too, or no? Well, that's the thing. We don't really tell you what you can do with it. <laughs> we have done a thing where we put a mirror in the center of it. That was kind of our joke. It's like, that's the Miami edition, Susan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> it has come to my attention that some people here think that the use of drugs is something to laugh about. We don't feel that way. You were the one joking around calling Dwight an arc. No, no. That was a test. I was testing you. And you all failed. Drugs ruin lives, people. Drugs destroy careers. This year, more people will use cocaine than will read a book to their children. Where did you get these facts? Are these facts scaring you, or are they not? They are not. Do you think that smoking drugs is cool? There were people like passing out because it was like 100 degrees outside and you just had to stand there with a rifle for an hour. I lost like 25 grand in a day and I got fired. So is there a reason they all don't like each other? So here's my take on it. I was out at a bar and I'd start asking people randomly. I'm out, I'm like, hey, do you smoke weed? And they'd be like, yeah, I do. And then I just go, what does your coffee table look like right now? And then they stop for a second and I go, it's messy, isn't it? And then they're like, yeah, it is, it's messy. And I'm just like, what if I had something that could fix that? And it was called the Blazy Susan. I just got this email in from Freddie. So let's go ahead and take a quick read before we get started with this interview. Freddie says, the guest lineup is great and breadth of coverage is good. Number two, the length of each episode, period. Enough time to dig in. Number three, the host. Dude, you're very awkward, but your sense of humor is endearing. So you find me endearing. Let me just make sure I understand what that means. Arousing feelings of affection or admiration. So I arouse you. All right. And then it looks like he has a section of what we need to improve on on the podcast. So this is my favorite part. Dude, you sometimes ask the guest's age, then they tell you at the age of X, I did Y. And you start doing the math in your head, but get it wrong when they're trying to guess the year they're referring to. And I don't mean off by one year. Sometimes it's more than five. Well, Freddie. Did you ever fucking think that maybe the guest is getting their age wrong? Sometimes people can't remember the exact age they were. I use Excel and follow a timeline. I could argue with their exact age of where they are in their timeline, but I thought it might be more pertinent to keep carrying on with the conversation. So we got a couple other quick ones here and then we'll get to here. Okay. Number two, get familiar with the product before the taping. If your host brings up product Y, I'm the host, by the way. So do you mean guest? What is with these people who send me these emails? Anyways, if your host brings up product Y, the product that led him to his home run, dude, no one watches fucking baseball. This makes sense. You're a baseball guy, right? Okay, Freddie. Freddie, the baseball guy. I mean, that kind of explains a lot here. Anyways, let's get back to it product that led him to his home run, then don't go, yeah, I'm Googling it right now for crying out loud. That sounds like amateur hour. Actually, here, let me just Google that real quick. Okay, I'm Googling uh, Google amateur hour. 
Oh, so it's unprofessional. Okay. So Freddy, the professional baseball guy. All right. All right. So that's number two. Keep adding on to this name of yours. Number three, pay attention. And speaking of parrot, don't be one. <laughs> what the fuck? Are you? <laughs> I've never fucking heard <laughs> anyone being called a parrot. But hey. Relax, son. It's just a bird. <laughs> I love birdie. Polly want a cracker? Polly wants your mama's sweet ass. What did Polly say to me? I said, Polly wants your mama's sweet ass. You don't know my mama, son. I know your mama. I fucked her last night. I'll fuck you up. Oh, I'm shaking. I'm shaking. Oh, nah, fuck this. I'm handling this shit like gentlemen. Yo, hold my tooth, son. Yeah, come on, bitch. You and that welcome back Cotter haircut want a piece of meat? Come on, bring it on. What? You hardcore? Give me some. What? Come on, bitch. This nah, is nah, what nah, let me out of here. I'll fuck you up. Okay, and last but not least, splitting interviews in two parts with part two on Patreon only is annoying. I understand what you're doing, but I'm wondering if this is turning people away. Or maybe I'm just cheap. Well, guess what, Freddy? I don't give a fuck. In case you can't tell. If you're curious, the first year, it literally cost me money to make this podcast for people like you, Freddie. The second year, I just barely broke even. And this third year, thanks to the Patreon membership, I'm finally making a very minute amount of money for putting out this podcast for grateful people like you, Freddie. So if that drives frugal people like you away, then that's fine with me. Come on, pussy. Let me out of here. I'll fuck you up. And that's why we have 50 exclusive episodes for our Patreon members right now, including those part twos that Freddie loves. So now on to this episode. My name is William Brakel. I'm 28 years old and I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm the founder of a company called Blazy Susan, which is a company that provides smoking accessories for people in the cannabis industry. And we've been doing this for about four years now. What do you mean by smoking accessories? So smoking accessories, it's a pretty broad market and it's expanding every day. So the biggest one that we work in is rolling papers and cones. So things that are used to basically consume the plant. That's basically our large segment of the market now. We also make rolling trays, ashtrays, and other accessories that basically go along with that experience. And you said you've been doing it for four years? Yes, coming up on four years, we came up with the first idea in 2017, and really our first year as a business was 2018. What is a Blazy Susan? Because it took me a little bit to figure it out. I mean, I've heard of a Lazy Susan, I think I told you before, but I still don't even know if I really knew what that was. I had to like Google it to figure that out. So can you tell us the name behind your company name? It was a play on the word Lazy Susan, which is, I think, a household name. Most people know what that is. It's either your grandparents had one or you have one in your kitchen. But basically, a Lazy Susan is meant to make your life a little bit easier, right? It helps you store things and kind of keeps them nice and organized. And the Blazy Susan has a very similar mission is that we're in the cannabis space, in the smoking space. We want to be a brand that really helps clean up your life, gives you the tools to kind of create a better situation in your home and really kind of lift up the experience of smoking cannabis, of consuming cannabis. From there, we actually kind of created a character behind that, which is Susan. So it started sort of as a play on words, and then we developed that into an entire personality. 
again, if someone's just like out and doesn't know what a lazy Susan is, I always imagine it and I saw it like on a kitchen corner cabinet. It's kind of a spin tray or I guess I've always seen like spices and stuff like that. I guess you can have it out in the open too. But if you just imagine a corner cupboard kind of have two different rows or something like that, you can easily spin so you can get to everything a little bit easier, right? Right. And so the one that I guess I was experienced with my grandparents had one. So they had like patio furniture and it was like when you had the whole family over and you're sitting around a big circular table, you can put, and this is also very common in Asian restaurants as well. You put the condiments in the center so that you can pass the ketchup or you can pass the sauce across the table without having to reach over. And to go back sort of what is a Blazy Susan, it's basically a circular rolling tray. It's about 16 inches in diameter. And it's got a place for all of the most common accessories, like an ashtray, lighter. Can we like put our molly, acid, cocaine, ketamine, all that stuff on there too or no? Well, that's the thing. We don't really tell you what you can do with it. (laughs) We have done a thing where we put a mirror in the center of it. That was kind of our joke. It's like, that's the Miami edition, Susan. Uh, (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) I gave one to my parents, actually. And this was when they were still, what are you doing? And why are you not working a real job? And I sent them one and then they put all their spices on it. How much revenue are y'all doing? How big is your business? Like as far as employee count? 2020, we did just under 2 million in sales. In 2019, we did about a quarter million. So we grew about 700% last year. We have now eight employees. So thanks for giving us an overall view of uh, Blazy Susan. But why don't we go ahead and jump back to where you went to college and then how you got to where you are today. So I guess I was looking, you went to, looks like Virginia Military Institute. Yeah, yeah. So VMI, I'm originally from Virginia. So VMI was, I would say, one of the toughest military colleges in the country. It's a military school where you don't have to join the military afterwards. So it's a little bit unique in that. So it's about 50-50. So half of my friends joined the military as officers and the other half went into the private sector. I basically knew from day one that I wanted to go into private business. And VMI for me was very much a business decision. Being able to put yourself through a lot of adversity and stress I think has prepared me very well for the real world and basically just threw myself into the fire and kind of had at it. So started school, went down the path of economics and business major. And from there, I kind of discovered stocks and trading online. And I was able to have some capital from a landscaping business that I operated for about 10 years prior. So I had a little bit of money. I was very much invigorated and very excited about kind of the stock trading world. And one of the new markets that I was playing around in was cannabis stocks. So cannabis, vaping, all these new things back in 2013 were just coming to light on the OTC, the penny stocks, the pink sheets, what have you. And I started to get involved in that. But I'm curious about VMI. So why did you decide to go there? Where is it located? And were you from a city near there? Just a little curious about VMI a little bit more before we jump into more of the cannabis and your business relating to it. Yeah, so VMI, it's just about an hour from where I live. I know I had some people in my hometown that had went there. And basically what I saw was a lot of the alumni that went to that school. When they were older, they all were very well off and had done very successfully in their careers. So that was something that really drew me to the school. It's not like any normal college. You go through this thing called the rat line, which is your first year of school. It's very similar to a fraternity, but we didn't do any of the fun stuff that a fraternity might do. We had these things called sweat parties, which were pretty fun, I guess. They'd make you wear all your sweat gear, and then they would basically make you do push-ups for like 20 minutes straight until you passed out or not. So we had a very physically intense first year, and then you basically climb the totem pole throughout college. So there's a class system. 
people are in charge of you and there's student leadership. So it's a very regimented structure, very organized to the point where we had a 150 page book in our rooms full of rules, including pictures on how our rooms had to be from everything from like how our socks had to be folded to how our drawers had to be organized from like left to right. So it was a very intense experience and a very immersive one for me because I really just was trying to kind of stay alive and make it through the system. Well, in that rule book, did it say you could smoke weed? Definitely not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just making sure. <laughs> so I had a few close calls. Now that I've graduated, I don't feel as bad about saying it, but I went home for Christmas my first year and I smoked some pot. Watch out. And once I came back, like the first night, my roommate was randomly drug tested in the morning. And that was like 5 a.m. And I was sleeping right next to him. And I just was like, oh, my goodness. It was like all the fear of God really was put into me that day. So through the rest of the year, I was very careful about not doing it during the school season, on holidays and stuff. You can time it right. If I'm not smoking all year and I could smoke two times and then I have to wait 15 days and then I'm good. So we basically had a very regimented way to get around the system. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I learned at VMI. And a lot of things that I've taken away from alumni that have been very successful at VMI is that there's so many rules and it's very regimented. And a lot of the stuff that they do is purposely really dumb. And that is to make you think. So it's not on accident. The whole system is designed to challenge you. And the people that necessarily buy into the system right away aren't always the people that are necessarily the most successful. It's sometimes the people that learn how to sneak around those rules, how to get out and has still have fun at military school while not getting trouble, not getting kicked out, that sort of thing. You learn some lessons about how to work in a very regimented system, guerrilla marketing sort of tactics, I guess. But there was a lot of lessons there as far as productivity, resilience, and really being able to stick around in something that's tough over like a four-year period. I don't know if you like to smoke a lot even then, because I mean, more normal colleges, it seems like you probably could, right? So that's why I was just curious, especially with your business today, why you chose there. Was it because did you have family that also went there too? Because it just seems like with your type of aspect on life, again, I don't know how much you would have wanted to smoke or not smoke or whatever, but that this is like one of the few places you can't do it during this age. Right. Well, if I had lived in Colorado, I don't know if I would have made the same choice. The product availability wasn't that great in Virginia. So I don't think I knew what I was really missing out on at that time. And ultimately for me, it was a business decision. I knew that if I went to a normal college, my personality at that time in my life, I feel like I would have maybe messed around too much and maybe smoked a little bit much too pot. Oh my gosh, a little too much. Yeah, a little too much pot. I swear I did not smoke today. So it was a very much experience that I put myself through for the better. And I'll tell you what, I definitely would not do it again. But it's one of those things that I'm very glad that I did it because being an entrepreneur, there's so many hardships you have to face. And I think VMI really prepared me mentally to take on those challenges and not get too shaken up because ultimately there are days at VMI and at military school and at anybody has, you have bad days, right? But when your bad days are like people just making you march in a circle for six hours and they're not letting you leave and it's like prison a little bit, you come to appreciate the real world problems a little bit more in hindsight. So ultimately, I think it was like a training exercise. You can go through this, this isn't going to be as hard. And really, that's what I think I took the most out of it. Looking back on it now, I'm very proud to be from there because it's a very unique experience that a lot of people don't do because it's very difficult. What other stories do you have about, like you said, you had to walk in a circle for six hours. Is there anything else <laughs> that would be interesting? Because obviously I didn't have to do any of that at college. Well, I think I mentioned that we had to do parades every Friday. 
So no matter what, rain or shine, we would have to get dressed up in full parade gear with rifles and these big hats with big pointy things on the top. We called them donkey dicks, actually. I don't know if I can say that, but it was really funny. I've talked about drugs. We can say donkey yeah. dicks. <laughs> so we had these big hats and there were people like passing out in the parades because sometimes it was like 100 degrees outside and you just had to stand there with a rifle for an hour. It was a lot of very grind you down sort of things where it's every Friday, oh, you want to go out and have fun with your friends? Well, you got to do this parade first. And oh, you want to leave for the weekend and spend the night outside of barracks? Well, guess what? You have to have a pass for that. And we're only going to give you four every semester. It's a little bit like prison where if you're good, they'll give you rewards sort of a thing. For another example is if you wanted to take a weekend, another way to get one and earn that weekend is to give blood. So we literally were all of the cadets. We would just sell our blood basically to have fun. That was a very common thing for us to just whatever we can do to leave, we would try to do. And if you messed up, it was definitely one of those systems where it can break you. I saw people that they got in trouble once and then you get put on these restrictions. They have this thing called confinement, which is basically where you can't leave the physical premise of the school, not even to go like grab a soft drink at a convenience store down the street. And sometimes I actually got put on confinement for a whole semester and it was rough. I had gotten drunk in public charge when I was underage. So the commandant did not like that and I was punished accordingly. So part of that, I had to march these things called penalty tours and penalty tours were basically you're marching in formation with a rifle in a circle just right outside the school for an hour and each penalty tour is an hour. So I was sentenced to about 120 penalty tours when I got in trouble and every Wednesday, and on Saturday and Sunday, you had to march them. So you would do four hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday, two hours on Wednesday. In addition to going to school and waking up for formation and doing all the stuff, making sure your shoes are shined, all that kind of stuff, we also you know, had to put, do that as well. So it was a very great exercise in being able to handle all the stuff going on at once and kind of just grind it out where, you know, hey, I screwed up. I'm going to march in a circle for a significant portion of my time here the semester and my feet hurt, but you know what? If I can just make it through, I can get out of here. And that was basically the four years at VMI. So it was definitely a grind. And well, you know what? I would say I was definitely the jokester and liked to be loud. And I was kind of a loud mouth, the funny kind of jokester guy. And really that's what I wanted to change. And so that's what VMI did for me. We're just going to kind of scare you straight and kind of beat you down a little bit. Ultimately, I think it was a very good decision on my part. Everyone needs these types of things, I guess, from time to time or depending on the personality. So it's good you saw that. That's what I was going to say is like, did your parents recommend or you really knew that yourself? You're like, hey, I probably need to shape up and this is the place for me. Yeah, that was basically it. And also, again, a lot of the people that I knew who were alumni were all very well off in my hometown. So they were all like very cool guys. A lot of them were in the military. A lot of them weren't. But a lot of guys own their own businesses and were very successful. So to me, that was also a very attractive part of the experience was, I know this is going to suck, but if I graduate, I kind of have this alumni group of all these people who are very successful. And that was a big part of it as well. So it wasn't just to kind of self kind of punish myself, I guess. So there were a couple factors involved, but once I was in it, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, I can't give up. I can't drop out because that would make me look like a pansy and I don't want that. So but there's a little bit of everything. Once you're involved, it's, hey, I want to stick with this. I don't want to just wash out and go to another college and kind of start the whole process over again. There are definitely a few factors. I think everyone goes there for a different reason. And the cool thing about VMI, I think, is it's very diverse. There's a lot of people there that you wouldn't think would go to a military school. 
So it's not like the same kind of person. You have your guys there who are like the very gung-ho Marines. I want to shoot everything kind of guys. <laughs> you have like the Air Force people who are like, I want to be a JAG lawyer. And then you've got people that want to join the Navy and be on ships. So it's a very unique situation where you have all the different branches in the same school. So that athletes, people like myself who just wanted to kind of have the experience and then go into the private sector and business. Hey guys, Energetic Austin here. Are you looking for a historical safe investment vehicle that is recession and COVID resilient? Or are you worried about the erratic stock market, the long-term effects of inflation, or the new increases in taxes? As a smart and savvy business entrepreneur, you know there has to be a good option out there for you to invest your hard-earned money. Well, one of our Patreon members, Mr. Jonathan Tuttle out of Chicago, has all the answers to your problems. He runs a real estate fund called Midwest Park Capital, and they invest in mobile home parks. Mobile home parks, you say? Well, yes. Did you know that mobile home parks have been one of the safest real estate investments over the past 50 years? Plus, you get all the best tax benefits of all real estate property types by investing in mobile home parks. Plus, they help hedge against inflation. And guess what? You can have all this done by a seasoned investor without you doing any of the work. How? Well, just contact Jonathan Tuttle at Midwest Park Capital. Again, that's MidwestParkCapital.com to learn how you can invest in mobile home parks today. One more time, go visit MidwestParkCapital.com. I was looking for some sort of community where I could get some ideas on business. I could find motivation, inspiration to pursue my own things. I've technically had my own business for 12 years now, but it's a really small operation and I'm trying to do something bigger. Being told just go out there and do it is very helpful. And that's why I joined. That is pretty wild because what you just said too, the, all the branches, I had never understood why army people don't like Navy people or Marines who are even part of the Navy don't like Navy and Air Force. They all don't like Air Force. Like, <laughs> I guess you were a conglomerate of all of it there. So I was curious, is there a reason they all don't like each other? So here's my take on it. I joined the Air Force ROTC because I knew it was the easiest. So, so that's why they all hate Air yeah, Force. Yeah, okay. so, so Air Force <laughs> is kind of like... Air Force is, listen, there's like 5% of you that are going to be pilots and you're going to be like really awesome. You have to be the smartest. You have to be in the best shape. But most of the other people, from what I've seen, it's like you're either going to like a nuclear missile silo in Nebraska or you're going to Alaska on a base. So in a long story short, Air Force, it's best pay, least amount of physical discipline, if you will. And then you kind of have on the opposite end of the spectrum, at least for me as an outsider, you have like the Marine Corps, which was like, when you look at the ROTC instructors from Air Force compared to the Marines, it's absolutely not even a comparison. So while you're there, you're saying that you started getting into trading. I was wondering, like, how much free time did you actually have than a normal, like you said, college student? And tell us a little bit about that. It was a very intense lifestyle when I was there. So we'd be up at seven We'd have to be outside. We would do formation, salute the flag, raise the flags. Everyone had to march down to the chow hall every morning. And then every evening, we also had to march as well. So it started at seven and my days usually ended at like midnight or one. Jeez. And they had you doing stuff all day. That's a long ass day. Yeah. So every day you had like a different activity in the afternoon. So your classes were from like eight to four. And then after four, you would have ROTC time or you would have mandatory physical training time, or you'd have to go do something with the ROTC and do some sort of stuff with them. So it was very regimented. I always knew what I had to do. And I also got really good at taking naps. 
because you only had like a very limited amount of time sometimes between things. So really, I did a lot of the self-education on trading stocks on my own time, which was mostly at night and also in the classes that I thought were easy. (laughs) Understood. And so you said you started because you really couldn't partake per se of marijuana that you got interested in marijuana stocks or cannabis stocks, you're saying? Yeah. So it's crazy, but I actually started to get our leadership involved. I was in the business school and I started to make friends with some of the people in the administration. Long story short, I was basically advising these guys who were like colonels on cannabis stocks because I convinced them that I was really good at my job at the time, pumping up the penny stocks. I had colonels that were the commandant of the school basically investing in the stock and it went up really high and then it basically plummeted. So it was a very interesting transition to kind of being like this Wolf of Wall Street guy in my mind at this military school and being like, I know the stocks, I'm the stock trader guy. And basically that all came crashing down after I graduated. So I left on a good note and then it was like once I was out in the real world, I got the harsh reality of trading for a living. But yeah, I had the staff involved and was like convincing these guys like you need to invest in this industry, even if you don't smoke. I'm not smoking, obviously, but I'm still doing all this stuff. Wink, wink. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. I did smoke some spice when I was at school, though. Big mistake. I mean, back to the Miami, Susan, I tried to have fun, right? But I had to do everything that wouldn't show up on a five panel drug test. You know, I tried Kratom. I tried some of these things that are still in the market today, but Spice was one of them. And boy, that was just a dark time in my life, I think. (laughs) Like it was a semester of the Spice semester, just very sketchy. And then they started like kicking people out of school if they caught them with it. So it was always a cat and mouse kind of scenario dealing with the administration there because we had room inspections like twice a week. There would be like a colonel in the Navy who walks into your room and is like, you have dust here. Now you get 10 demerits and you can't leave. Oh, you had plans this weekend? Sorry. And that was sort of our reality. We were basically just like sheep living in the prison, if you will, and just trying to get through it. And at the end of the day, I think everyone came out a lot stronger. It's one of those things where you don't really realize until you get out of college and you start interacting with people in the workplace, in real world, and you're like, wow, I have a lot more mental toughness than a lot of these people. And a lot of these things that other people are getting stressed out doesn't bother me. And that was one of the first things I really started to realize coming out of that experience was I'm really prepared to make a lot of dumb decisions, I guess. (laughs) And that's what I did. So I lost all my money in the stock market. How much money did you make up till you graduated? I was curious. And then how long did it take to lose it all? I started with $10,000. I turned 10000 into 60000 trading actually Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That was like the first penny stock I got involved in. It was speculative. I had a good reason for it. I was able to do a successful play and strategy and make money. And then I basically saw the cannabis industry and there was a banking law that was passed sometime, I think in March in like 2013. And I basically saw that and just dumped everything I had into one stock, $60,000 into a penny stock at the open, which basically blew the stock up. And I started to become like the big guy who was plowing all these prices out of the way. From that 60,000, it basically went all the way up to 660,000 on paper. From there, I cashed out at about a hundred grand. So definitely took an L on that and learned some hard lessons there. But overall, you still made money because you put 60 in and you came out with 100. But you're saying you could have almost came out with 600. Right. I always have the joke. It's like hindsight trading. It's like (laughs) so easy. So the best hindsight trader (laughs) on the world. Shit, I bought Bitcoin when it was a dollar, right? But yeah, after that, I sort of just came out very shook. And I tried to replicate the same sort of penny stock strategy with my remaining capital. And that just basically lost it all. So it was like death by a thousand cuts after that. And then I basically bled myself out 
and had to get another job actually trading with other people's money. And that's how I moved to Denver. You come out of school, a VMI, and then you start working in the finance industry for a couple of years, or are you just doing the day trading still? Or just tell us what that is before you end up moving to Denver. So once I graduated, I still had capital and I basically moved out to Las Vegas and I moved into a house with some guys that I had met on Twitter. I would say that was my first time meeting like an influencer, quotation marks. And we had a whole trading house and actually they're still around. Shout out trading fraternity. It was one of those things where at the point in my life, I wasn't really ready to learn how to do it properly. It took me about three months in Vegas and then I had lost all my money. The worst part, actually, in hindsight, was that I didn't even go and have that much fun in the casino. I was losing all my money just in a house in front of a computer screen. So at the end of the day, I basically just kind of found out that it's a lot harder than people make it out to be in, that everyone's an expert when the market's rallying 5,000%. doesn't make you a genius. doesn't mean you can do that as a job every day. So from there, I was in Vegas and started looking for jobs and found a job in Denver as a proprietary trader, which means basically you go you learn another person's trading methodology, and then they would eventually give you your own account. And basically, if I made $100, they would take 50 of it. I make money for them, they make money, I make money, everything's good. That was an industry that we were trading at interest rates. So it was a very kind of niche market in finance. So we were trading interest rate futures. Not to get too into the weeds on this, but basically we had been in a zero interest rate environment for a long time. After 2008, just all the way about to 2014, 2015. So the interest rate market got really volatile as I started to get into it. And what happened was our whole trading firm was kind of on the wrong side of the strategy. When I first came in, people were making money, things were good. And sort of by the end, this was like a year and a half later, there were other trading firms or setting up algorithms that were absolutely just blowing us out. Really like they were picking apart our methods. And it was really crazy to see because kind of from where I started to where it ended, the algorithms just started controlling that market so aggressively that if you were a human being trading in that market, and we were trading like for ticks. So we were trading with a huge leverage, a lot of spreads. We were very hedged off, but we still had very large positions. And the algorithms could basically tear those positions apart and then leave us hanging with either tons of fees because we were trading like 10,000 or 20,000 contracts a day. So you have a ton of fees with that. And then if you take a loss or something, like let's say I had a spread, I'm short one thing and I'm long another thing. Sometimes that spread gets ripped apart the other way. So I'm short one thing and I'm long the other thing. My short starts losing and then my long also starts losing. So it was a very volatile time and I don't think that firm actually exists anymore. So basically I was working there and got fired for losing too much money. <laughs> so I was able to do it for about a year and a half. I was trading overnight, trading in the Asian markets. It was a lot more stable. And eventually I just got burnt out. That really kind of impacted my trading and I lost like 25 grand in a day and I got fired. That was really when I was like, you know what? I tried since college. Now I'm two years out of college, gave it about four or five years. Now it's time to move on. So that was really for me when I decided that this isn't really what I'm good at and time to find something else. That was really like my transition out of that industry. And that's really when I also started to say, hey, what really got me into this? It was actually the cannabis industry. Once I lost it trading, I was like, you know what? This isn't really what I wanted to do anyway. I don't think I'm just not a good trader. Too emotional. And that's really when I started pushing the Blazy Susan. So Blazy Susan was like my comeback strategy. So ever since I moved to Denver, this was like back in 2014, I had worked for this company 
and had the idea while I was trading. So I had the name in my head for like four years before I actually did anything. And once that transition for me happened, where I was like, listen, you're not going to get another job trading. Your track record is not very good. It's time to try something different. At that time, did you have any money saved up as you got let go from that firm just doing all this trading? Because it sounded like personally, you made no money. I don't know if you had any saved up or even any money to live really up to that point. No, I was pretty poor at the time. And I was making like $25,000 a year when I was working for that trading company. So I was working, you know, 16 hour days. I would come in at like 5 p.m. And then I would leave at about 7 a.m. the next day. That's pretty crazy right there. I mean, that lifestyle, were there other people doing that? And again, it's because this is the Asia market. So you had to basically work there daytime. Yeah. So we had a whole trading floor. So there was like a whole class of students. I would say there were about 10 to 12 people overnight. So we did have a little bit of camaraderie there. And we got to see some really crazy stuff happen. We saw a lot of threats from Kim Jong-un at the time, and that didn't do anything for the market. We saw some interest rates went negative in Japan. So we saw some cool events happen in the world, but it was, it was a little slice in New York, I would say. And that was really appealing to me because it was in Denver, very progressive city. And obviously I love cannabis. So a lot of things going for me. It was like a little trading floor. I had like six monitors. We had a real-time data thing. It was called a Ransquawk. And it was like this British guy who would basically just yell at you when anything happened in the world. So this guy was just sitting on Twitter and just monitoring stuff. So something would happen in Japan and this guy would come on and be like, Japan just went negative interest rates right now. And then the market would go nuts or anything like that. So we had a whole trading floor. We had a lot of guys yelling and getting past, getting very aggressive and all the kind of fun stuff that you would think on a trading floor. It was a great experience for me to do that as a job. I didn't make any money, but I had a lot of fun and learned a lot about trading in the market. So it was definitely, I think, one of those like pay your dues sort of careers, but I never really made it to the point of like, hey, you paid your dues. Now it's time to make money. That was sort of where I was like, paid the dues, was on my own. And then I kind of fell back into my same trap of basically just going too aggressively and investing, like going all in not cutting my losses quickly enough, those sort of things. So I would say that I have learned the hard way and I definitely learned the hard way in that industry. What year did you let go and how long did it take to start Blazy Susan from there? I was let go, I guess the summer of 2017. And I know I have a name, so I knew the name was cool. I think ultimately that was the most important thing was going up to people and doing a lot of just kind of consumer feedback. Like I started by just saying, I was out at a bar or something and had a few drinks, right? I'm still working my other job, but I'd start asking people randomly. I'm out, I'm like, hey, do you smoke weed? And they'd be like, yeah, I do. And then I just go, what does your coffee table look like right now? And then they stop for a second and I go, it's messy, isn't it? And then they're like, yeah, it is. It's messy. And I'm just like, what if I had something that could fix that? And it was called the Blazy Susan. And people were just like, oh my God, I love it. And that basically just kind of snowballed. Once I had sort of the rough outline of the branding and sort of what I wanted to do is when I really started to get involved in like building the product. And I think that was the toughest part of anything was just as a guy that was a business major, I've never done machining. I had rebuilt cars and I'd done some stuff in high school. But I mean, as far as getting into manufacturing products, it was a whole new learning experience for me and one that was very rigorous because you're basically starting at square one. I was talking to product development firms. And just trying to go in there and try to siphon as much knowledge as I could. I'm like, well, how much would it cost to make this sort of a thing? Or like this 1500 bucks. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
too expensive. Let me look somewhere else, right? And I was basically trying to figure out how to prototype this product. And I started with 3D printing. I looked at some 3D printing sort of services and they were very expensive. Ultimately, I had to go with those expensive 3D printing guys and they helped me kind of create my first 3D model and my first like renderings of the product. Once I had that, then it was like game on. Now I'm like, okay, I've got this rendering. It's a tray. You put all your stuff in it. Now I'm going to start going out and actually showing this to people in the cannabis industry. So yeah, you said you did this MS Paint and then you get a 3D model made. How much did that cost? Because there's so many people in your position right now that I really want to hone in on this part before we start talking about how you find a manufacturer, if you will. So just tell us about getting a 3D model made, how much that costs and what you do again if someone in their head is coming up with a product and wants to do it. Because it sounds like you did everything perfectly because you came up with a good name. You're making sure it made sense. Once people seem like they wanted it to make sense, then, hey, it's time to take the next steps of a model and then, I guess, finding a manufacturer eventually. Right. Yeah. So the process that I started with was I was just trying to find someone that was specifically in product development. And I was looking for someone that I could talk to in person. There are a lot of, I looked at tons of different services and ultimately I really like in-person communication. And so I found a guy that they also did a lot of 3D printing. And ultimately when you're doing model work and design work, it really depends, right? You can go somewhere like Upwork or a freelancing site and you can get people in Europe or in other countries to design things for you. So I would say I was very lean in how I do things. But the first model we made cost me several hundred dollars. And that was a big investment for me because before then it was mainly just me talking to people and that didn't cost me any money. So starting with that model, I then tried to go find 3D printing people. And this was not even that long ago, but I feel like 3D printing has come along a long way, even in the last couple of years. But at the time, I thought 3D printing was like this, this cure-all. And I was like, oh, you can 3D print my model and that's going to be great. And then I slowly really found out, I was like, this is not production. This is very much prototyping and just to look at it. And it's also very expensive. So I paid a couple hundred dollars for my model. And then I go, all right, well, let's 3D print it. And they go, that's going to be about $1,200. And I'm just like, whoa, okay, holy crap. Yeah. And at that point, did you think that these guys, that this was kind of almost like manufacturing, but you're like, okay, realize this is really just going to be a printed model. I can't obviously manufacture these for 1200 bucks. Right. And I feel like that's also something that I've run into as well as like when I told people about it, they're like, oh, why don't you just 3D print it? And I'm like, I don't think a lot of people know it's not really commercially viable. Well, did you get it 3D printed first off? Again, I want to make sure it's stuff. So I'll cut in a lot probably here to make sure I help everyone who's listening. But did you get it printed there for 1200 bucks or no? So I did not. I actually ended up finding a guy who was in college at a local university, and I was able to help have him basically use his university 3D printer to create like a one-third scale model. After the 3D printing, like, hey, this isn't really going to work. You have to figure out other methods. And that's when I really started learning about manufacturing. So I was looking at thermoforming and injection molding and looking at like CNC machines to manufacture all these different sort of products that all I'm doing is making a tray. There's plenty of ways you can make a tray, right? So I looked at all those options. And for me at the time, injection molding was very expensive. Then really, I was almost out of options. So this was like where I hit like a dead point where I feel like I almost kind of gave up where I'm just like, well, shit, how do I make this? I don't have enough money. And it's crazy because I ended up meeting this guy through my 3D printing service. And I just went to them and I was like, listen, you guys got to help me find someone with a CNC router. 
And just for people who don't know what a CNC router is, it's basically a computer controlled drill that can cut out shapes on like, let's say you have a sheet of plywood, it can cut out a perfect shape, whatever you program into it. So for me, making a tray out of wood, which is circular, it makes a lot of sense, right? I can just put a piece of wood down there, cut it out on the CNC, and then basically it just needs to be sanded and then finished. However, a lot of these services, if you just Google like, hey, CNC guys, right? They're charging like $130 an hour to run these machines. So even prototyping was very expensive for me. And so I didn't go with any of those guys. I actually begged these guys, the 3D printing guys who wanted to charge me 1200 bucks, and just said, do you know anyone with one of these machines? And this guy, I shit you not, pulled a card out of the trash in front of me and goes, this guy just came in, but he was crazy. And I go, give me that card. Next thing I know, I'm in this guy's garage and he's got a $150,000 four axis CNC mill in his garage. And he is a older guy, kind of a really like old machinist. He was machining stuff back when there were no computers. So he's just been doing a really long time. And luckily I was able to kind of befriend him. And he also smoked pot, which was a great thing for me because he didn't charge me a lot. Without that, I couldn't have got to the next level. Yeah, I mean, and at the point of reflection, you were saying when you almost gave up, how much time did you let go after you couldn't find someone to do it at a price point? Was it like a week, a day, a couple months? Because I think everyone, no matter what business you're doing, especially getting started, you start going and then you'll obviously you try to jump through some hurdles, but you eventually end up pausing or like because you just get so frustrated and wondering if you want to really do it. But then you end up doing it again because I guess you get reinvigorated. So how long did you have the thought of like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to actually do this or not? I think once I found that guy with the CNC, that was like the next invigorating point because, OK, now I have the machine. Now I can actually make this and I can have that level of control where I don't have to pay a guy $130 an hour. And I'm also going to be taught. I was learning a lot about the machines. But I would say even before him, because, yeah, I definitely feel you. So how much in between before you found this guy's card in the trash? Jeez, that had to have been at least three to four months. Okay, that's why I'm glad I asked, dude, because some people might think like you made progress every day, right? Or every month. But we all reach walls or hiccups where you're just like, okay, I guess I can't do this at a cost-effective point, right? But I get them at some point you went back to some guys and you're like, okay, I'm going to go try this again. I can do this, right? Yeah, and that's absolutely right. Once I had, I'm like, here, I'm going to spend $2,000 and then I'm going to see where it's at. And then I'm like, you know, hey, I can still walk away if I don't want to do this, if I don't want to quit my job. And yeah, every dollar you're spending is like you're crossing that bridge, and the time is very important as well, too, because I think it's all about consistent action. And that's one of the biggest things that can help you avoid in a crazy way. I think it helps you avoid burnout because you can keep pounding your head against the wall. But at the end of the day, it's really important that you do keep pounding your head against the wall. In all honesty, I mean, I think that time period of confusion, it also helped me really harness in on the business model. You do a lot of reflection in those months where you're like, do I really want to keep fighting to figure out how to do this? there's no one that can do it near me, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when I started to really like look at other manufacturing methods and learned a lot. And that set me up for success in the future because I had done a lot of education on what was out there and what methods were available. Hey, Freddie and friends, it's Energetic Austin here. Are you itching to get back to what you love? Me too. I can't wait to enjoy travel with my friends and family. But you know what? This time, I want to make sure the next time I head to the airport, my experience is fast, safe, and easy as possible. That's why I'm excited to talk about Clear Today. 
Seaclear is a secure identity platform that creates frictionless journeys at airports and beyond. Move faster through airport security and feel confident returning to who, where, and what you love. With Clear, all you need is you. After a quick one-time enrollment with your government-issued ID, you can use just your face or eyes for safer, touchless entry at airports, stadiums, and more. Guess what? You can also create your account online before going to the airport. Once you get there, a friendly ambassador helps you finish the process, and you can use Clear immediately. Join over 5.5 million people who are already using Clear. Once you become a member, you can use Clear for faster, touchless, seamless entry across Clear's network at airports, stadiums, arenas, concert spaces, office, restaurants, and so much more. Clear members can add up to three friends or family members to their account for a discounted rate. And even better, kids under 18 can tag along for free. You know, I just signed up for Clear and I can't wait to start using it. I guess the only problem for me is I don't have any friends. So I don't have anyone that I can give my discounted rate to. But you know what? Clear is such an awesome deal that even if I had friends, they don't need that friendship discount. Clear is the absolute best way to help you get back to what you love. They have locations in over 35 airports across the country, making it safer, easier, and faster to reunite with loved ones or take that much needed vacation. It works great with pre-check too. And right now, for a limited time, you can get your first two months of Clear for free. Go to clearme.com slash millionaire and use code millionaire. That's C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot com slash millionaire and use code millionaire for your first two months of Clear for free. Clearme.com slash millionaire and use code millionaire. Just want to emphasize too that it's okay to pause and debate in your head if you're going to keep going forward with it too. It seems minuscule now, but if I didn't say that, like that might have all again seemed like you're making progress literally every single day. But even when you pause for a little bit because you're debating whether it's worth it, it gives you enough time to make sure that you're not just doing it on a whim too. If you pause and then come back to it, you're like, okay, I've thought about it more and more logically, and this does make sense versus just having momentum from day one and just keep rolling like a snowball, like everything's going to be great because it's just not going to happen. So eventually you find the CNC guy, you befriend him, he's able to start making the and so how much was he able to make them for you? As far as like the price point, it was very good. I could actually sell them. I could make money on them, but I was also doing it all myself. So that was sort of a thing. It was like he set up the program, but I was in his garage, tons of dust. He's like chain smoking cigarettes and we're smoking weed. <laughs> so it was one of those things where I'm like, wow, this kind of sucks. And I wish I didn't have to do these one at a time. So some more background on the machinery. That CNC router that he had, that was for like metal parts. Like he could cut stainless steel and he was making these crazy complex parts, like these nozzles for a spray foam gun that had tiny holes in them. And the bits were like super precise. And I'm in there like, hey, can I put this block of wood in here and like cut this up? So it really was not the right machine for the job. And eventually I was able to find a guy on Craigslist. He just had an ad out and was like, hey, I'm trying to put up a CNC router and I'm looking for a partner or I'm looking for a space. And so I reached out to this guy and he had a CNC router. And the difference between that and the last machine is it's a four by eight foot machine 
so it can cut a whole 4x8 slab of wood in one go versus I actually had to slice these 4x8 sheets up into little squares and like manually load them each time. So it just took a lot more time and it wasn't a real viable commercial model. So I found this guy and he didn't even have a machine at the time. So it took it about another year until he actually had his stuff set up. And then at that time, I started manufacturing through this guy who I knew, and he's based in Denver, kind of a similar situation. Like he has a CNC in his garage as well, but it was just a better machine for what I was doing. And a four by eight piece of wood, you can probably do, I don't know, maybe what, 20 of these versus like you loading in and doing one at a time on the other machine. Right. So it did about like 17 units at a time. Hey, that's pretty good by yeah. me, huh? I was looking, I'm like, I bet, I know it's yeah, about 20 if I had to guess. Okay. Versus again, you cutting, pre-cutting and putting them in that other machine because it really wasn't for that. So you imagine just doing almost 17 at a time versus one at a time. So a lot more efficiencies. Right. And you can walk away from the machine. I mean, obviously you, you want to watch it, but you know, it takes like two hours to run the program. So you sit there, you wait for two hours. You pull everything off, you throw another sheet on, and now you're kind of getting to the point where I'm like, okay, I can actually have a bit of a backstock on these, and I don't have to sit here personally and manufacture them all day. He would actually cut them for me, and then he would just give me the raw wood that was cut, and then I would take those to my garage and like sand them all myself. And then I had another guy that I knew that I also just found like on Craigslist who did all the varnish. So I already had kind of a complicated supply chain even to start. And that was something where we just kind of continue to develop on that. And now, kind of fast forward to now, we have our own CNC machine in-house. So instead of outsourcing and paying more, because I was still getting charged like $100 or more an hour, even on that guy's machine. So I didn't have the money to buy a CNC. They're very expensive machines. So I think if you want to buy the cheapest CNC possible, which is basically like 18 inches by 18 inches, not production, even something like that is going to be a couple thousand dollars, like two to three thousand dollars. A four by eight CNC machine is going to be anywhere between 40 to like $60,000 on the low end. And you can spend a hundred grand with your eyes closed on CNC routers. So they're very expensive, but the amount of stuff you can do with them not just making rolling trays. I mean, they're extremely useful machines. So if you know what you can do with them, they will make you money. You can make signage, you can make all kinds of little consumer products on them. So they're very cool machines. But again, that CapEx is something that most entrepreneurs won't have. Oh yeah. And by the way, you need a warehouse to put this in and you need a dust collector and you need three phase power and you need to wire that up and you have to move that CNC into your building and that costs thousands of dollars on its own because you're moving this thousand pound piece of equipment on a giant forklift and you have a team of five guys to do it. There's all sorts of things that like on that side of it that I've learned, but by paying other people. So I started learning the CNC stuff with my first guy. And what was the first guy's name? Just so it's easier if you tell me their names. Yeah. You know what? I feel really bad. I can't recall right Oh, I can't oh my God. This was your friend. This is the guy who helped you get started. You can't remember his name. <laughs> I just think gun guy. All right, gun guy. We'll call it gun guy because there's two different guys. And then Craigslist guy yep. is your upgrade. All right, because the Craigslist guy too, like you're saying, you still had quite, like even when I said you're just cutting out, let's say 17 at a time, some people might think you were done. I mean, I didn't think necessarily you were done, but you're saying then you got to sand it and then you got to put a coat on it. It doesn't sound super complicated, but I can just imagine my head, this is still very time consuming of why it would cost a good amount to make one of these. Yeah. And also during this time frame, I'm also paying another company to develop this in China. 
Because throughout this whole process, I was never content. I'm like, listen, this is still too expensive. I'm still paying too much doing it in the U.S. Craigslist guy is better than the gun guy, but at the end of the day, I still need to bring my prices down. So I quoted out in China and done that sort of parallel to the USA side. So I was always kind of looking at that long-term timeline of eventually I'm going to get this on Kickstarter, I'm going to put it on Amazon, and I'm going to sell tons of them. If I can hit this price point, then I can do that. I always had an idea in my mind of what I wanted it to be, and that was always for me not to have to sand them, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely a complicated process. Well, what was the prices from gun guy to Craigslist guy? Do you remember how much it cost you? So it was about the same, but I didn't have to be there. I would just drop off the wood. I'd come back, pick it all up. That was a huge time saving for me because then I could actually go out and focus on other aspects of the business. Like look in China for how you can even make it cheaper. But again, it's mainly we all have stepping stones to how you have to get there, right? So at least you freed up your time where you could do other things like you were saying. So as you're doing this, is this still full year one? We're still at the other company. Can you just tell us where we are in the timeline? Yeah, so I quit my job in September. And by that time, I had wooden prototypes that were made out of like mahogany and walnut, basically finished products. And that's how I quit my job. I'm like, here's my prototype, guys. I'm off to the real world and left my job there and had just sort of made contact with the Craigslist CNC guy, but we didn't actually start manufacturing stuff with him until like the middle of 2018. So there was still six months, seven months even, of sort of like me only producing a very small amount of these, doing it all by hand and not selling. I had an Instagram account. It was like the very first mock-up and design. And I basically built an Instagram around that mock-up and the rendering. And I had slowly developed an audience on Instagram and actually was running some Instagram ads, some paid ads before I got banned, which was very good in terms of like getting my name out there. So I had started to actually sell some units through Instagram. That was my main distribution point. So Christmas of 2017, I had sold, I actually did $1,000 in sales. So let's say in 2017, from like the end of November-ish to the end of December, I think I had sold 10 of those trays. And that was like, this is awesome. And then I'm like, I'm not selling enough. I have to do more products. And that was really the time where I started to create the rolling paper brand. And that's something that we haven't talked about at all, but our rolling paper brand is now our most successful SKU. And it's like 80% of our revenue. Yeah. So it's at that time you realize you have to start making your other brands. So what percentage of time are you using? Because again, you had to quit your other job. If you had to do it over again and like what time were you spending there? Because again, eventually you freed up time by moving to Craigslist guy, CNC. But do you think you did it all properly? You're doing some Instagram too. Like how many hours were you working here? I was working on Instagram, like a full-time job. I was spending like eight hours a day on Instagram. And that was every single person that followed me. I would message them and say, hey, thanks for following me. Can you sign up for my email list? And was really trying to work on developing the back end. And I was doing that because throughout this whole process, knew that I wanted to raise money, that I had to pitch investors, that I had to put real numbers together and show investors traction. And the Instagram was a big part of that. As far as like me quitting my job, I definitely pulled the trigger a little early, I think, but in a crazy way, it all worked out. But I quit my job with like $7,000. That's not even six months of living expenses, like not even close in Denver. From there, I started like hitting a lot of trade shows and started doing a lot more networking events. And sort of the, I would say like tipping point for me 
was in December, I had actually met a guy at a trade show who was now one of my partners. I put a $250 ad in this guy's magazine. He just started a magazine. I met him at a trade show. He loved our prototypes. He was like, dude, this is so awesome. And he was like the first guy that really I connected with like on a friendship level. We both got along really well. And then he saw like our brand and saw the vision. And from there, believed in him. I paid my first ad, even though I had basically no products to sell, didn't have a lot of money, but that $250 ad got me on CNN. And here's how. Basically, come December, this guy was coming to Denver and he knew that there was going to be a special for New Year's Eve. And so we had a custom tray made for him with his brand on it. So his magazine, which was called Cannabis Cactus, they're down in Phoenix. You should definitely check them out. But I made him a custom tray and we had an artist hand paint it. And basically what happened was I had no idea what was going on. I just thought I might be able to get like a pan over like, oh, my product was in the corner over there on the CNN special because ultimately there's millions of people that watch the ball drop, right? And it's a whole event, obviously pre-COVID. So what happened was I'm sitting here, I'm waiting. There's an event. So there was like a cannabis tourism bus that was like driving around and they were smoking in it. And there was a reporter on the bus, Randy Kay. And then there was another event that was like a puff pass paint party. I was kind of waiting at the second stop, which was like the paint party. He had my tray on the bus and I had no idea what was going on. But basically people started calling me and they're like, dude, I just saw you on TV. And I just absolutely had no idea. So I just lost it. And I was like, are you serious? And we ended up getting over like two minutes of airtime on CNN during the ball drop, which is like, that's a Super Bowl ad. And so this was like, holy crap, we might just make it. Because at that point, didn't have much money left. I had to take a loan out from one of my best friends in college. He was like the only guy that would lend me money, gave me five grand. And that basically floated me through that point. But I had like my Amex was maxed out. I kind of exhausted most of my resources as far as making new product development or making new prototypes. So it was like really a do or die moment for me. And we were able to get that shout out on CNN. Thanks to Mikey. From there, Jimmy Kimmel actually ran it the next day. So Jimmy Kimmel shouted us out on his TV show and said, hey, did you see the ball drop last night? And all these people smoking weed on CNN. So it was like that was the first time that CNN had ever done that. And so everyone was talking about it in the media, Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel, and he asked us for one. He says, if someone's got an extra Blazy Susan, send it here. For us, that was like the craziest point in time where it's like, oh my God, this might actually be a real thing. And we just got a shout out from Jimmy Kimmel. So that was a crazy kind of a turn of events for me coming off of that first year of side hustle and really grasping at straws, learning and experimenting and failing and trying new things. And then to be able to get that spark at the end of the year was absolutely huge. And that's actually what helped me land my first investor, who actually was Mikey. So the guy that I paid a $250 ad for ended up getting me on CNN and helped me run the business. So he gave me cash without a contract, and we've been great friends ever since. So I think it's a really good story as far as meeting someone, you know, you believe in each other. We're both entrepreneurs. We're both starting our own businesses. And he saw the value. He got us on CNN and he saw that people reacted to our brand. People liked the name enough to shout us out on live TV. So from there, that was really like where the starting bell or the starting gun went off for me. And now it's like, okay, now I've got money. Now I really have to develop a business. This was the huge turning point of weed had become legal in Denver. And so they decided to do it a special CNN there. Did you just blow up from there? I thought it would be like that. 
but it was still a grind. And I would say that 2018 was probably our toughest year because now it's like, now I have investors, now people are investing in me and I have to make the right decisions. And basically I raised $25,000, my first raise. I was able to put a better valuation on my company because I had gotten on CNN. So I was like, hey, it's worth more. And was it all from that one guy? Because I know you said he was your first investor. Was it 25000 all from the one dude? Yeah, it was from him. And then I was able to have him. Do you remember his name? Yeah, Mikey, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just making sure. <laughs> we got Gun Guy, Craigslist Guy, and Mikey. Okay, Mikey the investor. Mikey is a cannabis cactus. So he's got the magazine down in Phoenix. So ultimately, I blew through that 25000 very quickly. By April, I had to raise another 25000 and that was through one of his good friends. So it was like that first 50000 was kind of like through Mikey and his connections. So, Yeah, but where did all your money go? Because it seemed like you were really good tight with money up till this point, but then it seemed like it kind of went kind of quick. So during that time as well, I still didn't really have a firm business model on what I really wanted to do. So I knew that the trays were cool. Everyone loved the trays, but it wasn't like selling as much as I thought. And it wasn't enough to really sustain the business. So during that time, we invested in new products. So one of the big things was rolling papers. I was looking at pink rolling papers and one of the big reasons for that is, number one, it goes along with our brand because Blazy Susan, it's a feminine brand. We have a character whose name is Susan as our logo, and she's sort of a retro, almost like a diner kind of a feel. And so one of the things that we noticed in the cannabis industry is that the cannabis industry, it's getting better every day, but it has been classically, I would say, misogynistic and a little sexist towards women, right? Not very inclusive. A lot of the branding out there is large-breasted women and very scantily clad, and it's a little bit immature, like the old-school stoner guys. They kind of are looked down on society, right? Like these guys are kind of losers, and they're the shaggy dudes of society, right? So the first thing when looking at the pink rolling paper is like, this is something that women really can own, and that's unique, and something that also gives back to charity. So my mother is a breast cancer survivor. And on my 21st birthday, actually, it was when I found out. And unfortunately, she is still with us and she's in remission. So for me, it was one of those things where it's like, not only is this kind of a fun product and it's something that isn't out there really on the market, but it's also something that we can use to educate and advocate for cannabis. So like going on that point, when my mother was going through chemotherapy, we were in Virginia. So she had no access to cannabis. And at the time, there were only a very handful of legal states that you could get this stuff. And watching someone go through chemotherapy, I think is really tough. No matter who you are, you just see someone that you love get really weak and run down and they don't eat and they're obviously losing their hair and all that stuff. So through my knowledge of the cannabis industry that I had kind of gained trading stocks and reading all the stuff about the cannabis plant, it really helps people. It helps them with so many different things, appetite, nausea, just pain in general. So seeing someone have to go through that and not have access to it, because at the end of the day, it still might not be for you. But I think everyone should have access to it as a medical option. And that's really at the end of the day, what I'm very passionate about and what I want to use this platform to help destigmatize and normalize cannabis. That kind of played into it, like you were saying, when you're talking about that's part of what you give back for. But I definitely agreed with your whole spin of what you're saying and what yours, yours look very retro and pink and black. But at that point, you're saying the money spent and how we got to that point where you were just trying different options because, again, the trays weren't going to be enough. But you started doing your own paper. And was that here in, again, the U.S.? Because I knew you were flirting with China at this point, it sounded like. Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of crazy, but I had these samples from a company. 
and they were pink cones and they were made in China and they weren't really like the best quality, but I just happened to bring those samples with me to this Puff Pass and Pain event. So in addition to not only having my rolling trays on CNN, they were also showing off these pink joint cones that I basically had. And one of the first things I did was buy all their stock. As soon as that happened, I was like, oh my gosh, I accidentally blew this up and I don't even have it. I don't even have it with my brand on it. So the first thing I did was just try to buy all their stock. Who's they? The people in China? Yeah, that was the people that were manufacturing these cones. And so they were kind of white labeling them. And at the end of the day, I just said, hey, listen, I want to take all the pink cones you have. And that was two days after New Year's. And I don't think they actually saw that. So I was like really capitalizing on that publicity. And I wanted to control the market as much as I can. So I tried to take, you know, their stock basically off the market. And that actually ended up working. So we were able to take those pink cones and really start to give them out. They were expensive. They didn't really have the quality that I was looking for as far as like the actual smoking side of things. They had a lot of dye in them. I think it was like a soy-based dye. And then they were made with a palm pulp paper. Yeah, it was more for show than quality. And they had all these different multicolored designs and stuff on them. So they were really good to like show off and like at least to hand out. But these are made in France. I'm looking... Yes. So eventually I found a manufacturer for the rolling papers and that was just for the booklets. I don't know how I got in contact with this guy or like in the Dominican Republic of all places, but I managed to just Google. You're on page 12 of Google or something. Right. Or I'm like Googling every brand that I thought that they made. And I was just like trying to just about like, where are you made? Who makes you? And eventually got in contact with this factory. I basically placed my first order And from there, I actually found that factory. But the big difference was there are already other places where you can make rolling papers that are custom, right? But no one had pink. And so I had to find that paper. And that took me months. I think I first had the idea in October of 2017. And April of 2018 was when we actually got our first shipment. So that was a whole process. And also part of that process, too, was once we had the rolling paper factory, we started getting the samples of the French paper and we started like sending out samples to people because now we had an Instagram account. People knew that we were like a cannabis brand, that we had accessories and stuff. And so we were like, hey, guys, what do you think about this? And we had a lot of positive feedback. At that point, I would say we were about 65 percent guys on our Instagram. It was more kind of guys who liked the rolling trays and the organization because I think probably more guys are into the bigger bongs and stuff like that. Obviously, that's all changing now, but at that point in time, it was mainly guys. Well, and I'll say too, like, I guess rolling paper or any of this stuff, usually it's just basically plain white, right? And you said it was hard to find this pink. So that's, again, just marketing 101. It's just interesting because it's different, right? One other thing too that I wanted to point out too, you said it took months to find a manufacturer. And it's just kind of speaking from experience and from other people we've listened to. I don't think people understand that enough, how hard it is to find these people to, if you want to manufacture a product, like these companies where they are, it's not a simple search. You even kind of emphasize like how hard you were searching just to try to find these people. So it seems like after you get over that hurdle, that's one of the biggest things is just trying to find out who makes them and where they make them. Yeah, absolutely. And then going on that, then you have to convince them that you're going to be a good customer because 
Exactly. Because now like, they're like, okay, you're some random guy. Yeah, we have pink paper, but ultimately like you have to sell these factories and you have to almost like sell the sales reps on like, no, we're going to be huge. Give me your best pricing. And that's so important is when you're talking to these manufacturers, sometimes you'll get the guy that's like, we're going to send you the custody price, as I like to call it in the cannabis industry, is like they're going to overcharge you. And that's really tough when you're trying to build a business around it because you're like, well, I can't wholesale this. I can't build a pricing structure around this. The best thing I can do with this price is just retail it directly. And that's really tough because in the rolling paper business, there's so much opportunity in wholesale because there's every corner store, every smoke shop has tons of rolling papers. So once we got to the point where I got some samples and we actually sent those samples out, we had incredible feedback on the paper. And that was something where I feel almost just lucky. Like, you know, we were like the first people, I think, to market that paper in the U.S. and the way we did it. But the paper is it's available. It's something that is manufactured in Europe. And there are other companies in Europe that are selling pink rolling papers. But ultimately, it's all about the branding and the marketing. So we were very fortunate that the paper was very high quality. And when we started sending it out to people, there's several big companies out there like ZigZag and Raw and these big guys that are controlling the market. And we started getting feedback like, hey, I think these are better than all these other companies. And to me, I didn't really smoke tons of joints, to be honest. I'm more of a concentrate guy. So I truly was letting the customer tell me what they wanted. And unfortunately, we had overwhelmingly positive responses. So that's really when we started to pull the trigger and we ordered our first run. I think it was like $5,000 worth of rolling paper. Was that scary to send off? Because was that the first time you sent money foreign for, I guess, a product? Yeah, absolutely. And then just to kind of emphasize on that, the first order I got, they actually screwed up my packaging. And I had sent them, we had like three editions of packaging and I had sent them the third one. And I'm like, all right, make this one. Because it had a UPC code, it had like a disclaimer on it, like, hey, this isn't approved by the FDA, don't smoke, it's harmful, blah, blah, blah. And they basically printed out the one that had nothing on it, and they were like, hey, too bad. So for me, I thought this was just like a massive, I'm like, wow, I can't sell this. People need UPC codes to sell in stores, and I'm stuck with this. I'm going to guess, did you print out stickers and put it on the package? I actually did. At the end of the day, the people that were working with us, at least from wholesale perspective, they knew we were small and they didn't care. So we got lucky, but also we had to just give away a ton of those papers. So it was almost like that first batch, I probably gave away half of it because I was like, number one, I know my packaging's messed up. So I don't really want to have to sell too many of these in case there was a problem. No one ever confronted me about it. So it was okay. And we were able to, to fix it the next time we changed our packaging. But ultimately we had those rolling papers. And once we had our brand on them, Fortunately, the front of the paper was still the same, right? It was just like the back and the inside label that was different. So it was uh, not the end of the world, but like these guys, there's still a language barrier. So the mentality is also different when you're working with people in that sort of a community as well. Do the guys in Dominican Republic still? And you say these aren't the French people that you do it through now. I guess so the way it works is that the paper is all made in France. And then the co-packers are in other countries where the labor is cheaper. So ultimately the paper machine I heard recently, I think that machine, there's only about two of them in the whole world. And they're like $150 million a piece to make paper. Oh my gosh. So most people that make their paper or sell rolling papers, they're either lying and say they make it themselves or they're buying it from someone else. (laughs) (laughs) They're buying it from one of two people. Right. There's also a lot of people in China that make this stuff too. But, you know, again, the European cigarette industry is vastly more advanced. They've been smoking cigarettes before anyone 
And ultimately that's where the most technology is. So really you're investing in the paper quality using their machinery. And then ultimately it's all about branding from there. You know, I just say like we're Dunder Mifflin and we're just selling paper. At the end of the day, that's what we do. And we just try to market it well and just keep developing stuff. And one of the cool things that we're doing now is we're actually now working directly with the factory and we're actually developing some new products. So one of the cool things we're doing is we're developing a purple rolling paper. That's been like almost over a year now. We've been developing this going back and forth with the factory, giving them samples. They're sending us prototypes of paper and back and forth. But now we're really kind of working with the big guys and we've been able to like scale up to now like our order volume is enough where I can go to the factory and say, hey, I need a better price. Like, give me a better price or I'll find someone else. And it's like, we're slowly being able to kind of become a larger brand and have some more negotiating power with our distributors. And ultimately these people, I think it's all about like them just taking you more seriously. In any brand, and I've listened to some of your other episodes, right? Just like with the Soapbox guys, it's like, who are you and why do we care? We've never heard of your brand before. Why would we care if you were Whole Foods, right? And so I think that's like the biggest thing to start was like really grinding out that kind of that introduction. Hey, these papers are pink. Yeah, you don't sell pink papers. And a lot of people at first were very sexist about it, to be honest. They're like, we don't care. Like, we don't care about women want. It was a lot of guys, very male dominated. I think one of the things that actually helped me push through that was that I was a guy. I think if I was a woman, I really believe that a lot of these distributors at first would have taken me even less seriously. And that's something that I'm definitely aware of and want to kind of keep this brand as like a real platform for women as well, because it's one of those things where we were able to kind of break through that stigma and kind of start to make it mainstream. And once the distributors and the smoke shop owners saw that our brand did really well, they changed their tune. They're like, oh, we need more female products. We want to appeal to this. Because at the end of the day, most of these guys are just motivated by money. And once you can kind of show them a pathway towards that, that's really where we've seen in the last year a lot of wide wholesalers from all over the country are reaching out to us now because now we've kind of built a brand, customers know about us, and now people are asking for us in the stores. So our whole model was really develop the brand, and like if you build it, they will come. So we're not building up all the IP. We're not trying to overdevelop the product. We're just trying to get it in people's hands, and ultimately those people have been the best salespeople we could ask for. And here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan? Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks. Cool. Uh, Jonathan actually interviewed him on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on Group Call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego, and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers, and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you. We have three startup partners already. One is in Israel, one is in Tennessee, and one is in LA. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. So if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Definitely visit our website. So logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit. Okay, so it's free to sign up. Yeah, we're looking for startups. It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to say $300,000. And we also include services. So we might be able to provide a VP of sales to help get your startup going. It could be you know, customer success help. It could be technical help. We have a CTO on staff. 
And yeah, that's the approach. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively $0 to 1 million ARR. And where do they need to go to one more time, Jonathan? Logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. Going back to 2018, because that's where I guess we kind of stopped. And thank you for walking us through the manufacturing and then these different people you have to go through. Because I know that's super detailed, but that really matters for the people who are listening. It's not as straightforward as you think in trying to find those manufacturers. And you got to jump through hurdles to do that. But if we were back in 2018, you said you went through $50,000. And I guess I just wanted to pick up there and go over the last year and a half and how you've expanded. Yeah, yeah. So looking at this last year and a half in review, we have raised more money. Ultimately, the good thing is that we've been growing and I can't tell you how many pitch decks that I've done and re-edited and sent and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, we were able to kind of have those two years of losses, right? So 2018, I think we were like negative 45 grand, which isn't really that bad, actually. All things considered, wasn't that bad. Next year, we're still running negative. Well, how are you living? And I agree, it's not that bad, especially the more people I listen to, that's actually pretty good, even though you lost money. But like, how did you personally live then? I was very frugal, to be honest. I didn't do anything. I mean, at that point, I was networking and I had like a lot of people in the Denver community that I was working with. And I got very tied into like the Denver community. And from there, I slowly expanded out. I was like, okay, this is actually a global market. I don't need to just, I feel like I was almost getting a little bit too stuck in my local market and was like a little bit like, oh, I think I care too much what everyone thinks. And I kind of took a step back and really like separated myself from going out and doing networking events like every other night and really started to like take more time for myself. And I would say like I went into a little bit of a hermit mode in late 2018 and, and 2019. Well, like, late 2018 was when I really kind of was like, all right, if I don't get my shit together, this is going to fail, basically. So end of 2018 was really like that phase where it's like, all right, stop going to marketing events, stop trying to like spend time telling people about the business. And now just go out and do it. And that was really like the first time that in October of 2018, that was our first distributor. So we got our first distributor in 2018. It took about five months from when I first got my first rolling papers to when I got my first distributor. So I would consider that pretty good. I think everyone wishes that when they get their first product made, like it's there's buyers lined up right away. And I feel like everyone should strive for that. But distributors are very keen on the market. They know what sells and they're not going to just jump into random products because cash flow and turning over that inventory is like the lifeblood of these businesses. So to be a new product, it really does. You have to find someone that not only is going to be like personally a good friend to you. And that was my situation where like I met the distributor and we became friends and he, he saw me really hustling and he believed in my vision. So he gave me a shot. And once I had that shot, then it was all about like delivering and execution. So that means also like making sure you have more product. If he sells out of it and I can't get it to him, he's going to be pissed. He's like, right, like why would I bring this new product on? I get people excited about it and then you don't have it. So it's a balancing act. And I think once we developed a good relationship with our first distributor, he acted as one of our best salespeople because then he told his other buddies and he also was cool with me. And he said, hey, you should hit up this guy in L.A. You should hit up this guy over here. And through that process, I was able to build a network of distribution that ultimately just started to grow and grow. So their first order was like 500 bucks. They bought one case, second order, two to three cases. And now we're selling these same distributors like pallets of our shit. And that's really cool to see because we've been investing in the social media 
and really hitting hard on the business development on the branding side and seeing that translate into reorders from the distributors is really cool. And that was the point in late 2018 when I'm like, okay, I actually have like five distributors now. I have a product that has good margin. I can wholesale it. I can just get it in a box and then send it to someone else. I don't have to sand it. That's great. Things are going really well. And that was end of 2019 when you felt that? Or what point did you finally feel that relief? That was at the end of 2018. But you still weren't profitable yet, but you had the feeling of, okay, now it seems like I'm going to get over this hurdle. Right. And yeah, we kind of built the channels. And ultimately, like I thought wholesale was going to be the first major thing that we needed to focus on. And 2019, I would say, was like our year of really kind of kicking the B2C into gear. So that was like we had a website. We redid our website. We went through like two different web guys. And ultimately, it's like we were working with people that didn't really want much money. So that's another thing I'll speak on is we've had people come and go in the business. But ultimately, it's kind of like you get what you pay for sometimes. And that's the tough thing about being an entrepreneur is sometimes people will want to come into your business early on and they'll say all this stuff. They want to be like that co-founder with you. And you're like, wow, this is awesome. But you really have to be careful because some people will a lot more than often overpromise and underdeliver. And you have to be very careful with like giving away equity and being careful like a marketing person, right? Is a marketing person someone that you really want to necessarily bring on as an equity holder right away? I don't think so because there's always a better marketer. There's always things that you can change and you don't want to lock yourself in too early to people that might not really be the best for the business. And so what was your first profitable year? Was this this last year? And can you just, I guess, we'll kind of close it out from here as far as what you've learned and how are you able to make the Blazy Susan into a success? Ultimately, this year was our first profitable year. We did just under 2 million in sales and we did about 400,000 in net income. So we've been reinvesting everything from the start. It's always been about reinvesting, constantly building the brand and launching new products. Where we've changed like from 2019 is now that we have these distributors and we've got more of a marketing presence. Like now we have like 60,000 followers or more on all of our social channels. So we've got an audience. We have a thriving e-commerce platform and we invested into SEO very heavily actually in March when the Corona hit. That was when it was like, for me personally, it's like, okay, I have to go B2C. This is like, we have to absolutely invest into this. So we created like an Etsy store and we redid our website again and all that stuff really compounded this year and paid off big time. So I think at the beginning of the year, January, we did like maybe $3,000 on our website. And last December, we did just under 100,000. So it really paid off. Our online SEO, search rankings, all that stuff absolutely paid off and helped us to really generate more inbound leads. And the buzz that we were able to generate through Instagram and through guerrilla marketing has really created a lot of buzz behind our brand. And it's one of those things where right now we don't actually have a salesperson. All of our leads are inbound and we're growing like 70% every month. So I think it's all about what I could attribute to that would be really just believing in the brand and investing in the people that also believe in the brand. So just to touch on this really quick, like influencer marketing was absolutely huge for us. I mean, I think that was the thing that we probably did better than a lot of people in the space that are competitors. Look at zigzags. If you actually look up hashtag zigzag, you will find more photos of our product on the hashtag right now. And that's from our customers. So I think really engaging with the customer base, giving out samples, making people feel welcome and making them feel heard really builds a sense of community behind the brand. And that's what I think has continued to propel us 
And now it's sort of like an underground thing where it's like, oh, you don't know about this brand. Let me tell you. And our customers are very passionate about advocating for us. I think that's probably the thing that sets us apart and has made us so successful this year because ultimately the consumers are asking, the stores ask the distributors, and the distributors come to us with six-figure orders. That's really where everything comes down to. And we kind of had a different model where a lot of people will just go to these big distributors with no traction and just say, please carry our product, it'll do well. As opposed to the distributors coming to us and saying, we've been hearing about your product all over the place. We want it. How do we get it? And I think that's really the big shift that was in 2020 what happened. We were coming from like 2019. It was like, yeah, people know about us, but there were still a lot of distributors on the fence. And as these distributors are watching our brand grow and grow, eventually they all want to jump on because it's like, hey, you're going to make money with our brand and people want our brand. So I think it's one of those things where now it seems like this is, oh, this is common sense, but it took a lot of work and a lot of brand building, a lot of groundwork to create that buzz to really get those results. No, absolutely. As we can tell with your story. So I thank you for being so open and walking it through in detail. That's why I wanted to have you on just like, cause you're a younger dude, you're still fresh in it. You can remember all these things that you had to go through. And again, it's not like it took a week or a day or a month. And sometimes you have to take breaks because it's just not always going to go up and to the right. So I think you did a great job of kind of pointing that out and congrats on being profitable this last year and making it sounds like a significant amount of profit and being able to reinvest it back into Blazy Susan. Yeah, absolutely, man. And there's still things that I'm learning now. It's like now we're starting to deal with like counterfeiters in China and other things. It's like all good problems, right? Trying to figure out logistics and do better on now it's like tweaking the logistics and like, oh, I need to time these shipments so I don't spend so much on air freight and this, that and the other. And those are all things that I'm still learning. And anyone that's listening, if you know about these things and you want to reach out to me, please do. I think some of the other people you've had on here are a little bit more established. They're in, they've been four or five, six years or more. And really, we're like just on our first year of real positive growth. And I think that we've got a lot more ahead of us. And we're really excited to keep learning. I just like all walks of life because it's easier for you to remember. So, I mean, some guys I've had on here have like 50 years of experience, right? So if someone wanted to reach out and say thank you or give you suggestions, I guess, even if they could help you out, what's the best way for them to reach out? I would say Instagram is a really good way to reach us. Our main Instagram is Blazy Susan, And that is just spelled like Lazy Susan with a B in front. Feel free to shoot us a DM or you can shoot me an email. My email is founder at blazysusan.com. Special thanks to our newest Patreon members. And by the way, you won't find Freddie on this list. So thank you to Chris Duck, Jonathan Libert, James Espiano in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, Austin Na, Derek Nizan in Abbotsford, Canada, Marin in Croatia, George in Alpharetta, Georgia, Esther in Switzerland, Anthony in Canada, Erica in Houston, Sin Leprink in Australia, Zach Roof, Andrew Kuzaki in Australia, and Alex Zulitsky in Mountain View, California. Hope you're all enjoying those special Patreon episodes and can't wait to see you on our next group call. If you want to Join these smart people, then become a member today. Just go to austinsbigp.com. That's austinsbigp.com to sign up and become a member today.